This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide story that affects you. I'm Shana Roth, and this week I'm joined by a familiar voice for public radio listeners, Capitol reporter for the Michigan Public Radio Network, Colin Jackson. Welcome to Mishmash. Thanks for having me, Shana. A former Republican candidate for governor, former attorney general nominee, and former U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands. Those are just a few of the formers that are throwing their hat in the ring for the role of Michigan Republican Party chair. And Colin, it's a pretty crowded field so far, right? How many are officially running and possibly running at this point? Yeah, so right now I don't have an exhaustive list, but as far as the people that I've seen that have come about, uh, starting off, like you mentioned, a former uh, Republican nominee for Attorney General Matt DiPerno and a former candidate uh, for governor, uh, Garrett Soldano, he lost his primary. Uh, they're running as co-chairs. Tuscola County Republican Party Chair Billy Putman, uh, he's running. He's been running since August. Beside that, uh, this week we saw former Secretary of State Republican nominee Christina Caramo, uh, and she's joining as a co-chair ticket with uh, Melinda. I believe her last name is pronounced Pago. Uh, I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, she's a Muskegon County Commissioner. They're running as a joint ticket to be co-chairs. Meanwhile, a uh, former Republican uh, congressman and ambassador uh, to the Netherlands, Pete Hoekstra, uh, he announced a little under a week ago that he's running. And beside that, uh, Tudor Dixon, the former Republican gubernatorial nominee uh, who won that primary, uh, Tudor Dixon, she said she's considering a bid. We haven't heard whether or not she's going to move forward with that or not. So there's a few names in that race. And then beyond that, uh, current co-chair Michelle Maddock, uh, her future plans are still in the air. The Republicans in Michigan did not have a great midterm election. They lost control of the House and Senate for the first time in decades. And normally this might make a political party kind of look inward, maybe consider a new direction or some fresh faces. That doesn't seem like it's the case here. It seems like a lot of people that lost in the midterms are running. You mentioned Tudor Dixon is considering Secretary of State candidate Christina Caramo. It sounds like more of what didn't really work last time and a big part of what didn't work seems to be Donald Trump. So where are you seeing this all headed? It's interesting that you mentioned Trump, just considering that Each of these candidates, with the exception of Garrett Soldano, who lost the Trump endorsement to Dixon, has closely allied themselves with Trump. So it seems like the party is not necessarily moving away from Trump in that sense. Uh, Caramo and DiPerno uh, both appeared alongside Trump at a rally uh, earlier this year. Dixon notably won the Republican primary just within days of receiving the Trump endorsement. Michelle Maddock talks about talking with Trump on a semi-frequent basis. And also Pete Hoekstra obviously served in the Trump administration. So when I talked with experts, um, one thing they said is there's a difference between basing your brand on Trump versus kind of just being part of the Trump administration and remaining in his good graces. But at the same time, it seems like he's still weighing a lot on this party. Um, He still remains popular with the base, with the delegates and primary voters. So even though general election voters weren't necessarily persuaded by uh, Trump candidate arguments, It seems like, at least as far as the party faithful, uh, they're still supportive of Trump. Talk us through some of the particulars. What does the Michigan Republican Party chair actually do? And how important is this position specifically in shaping the party? 
Yeah, so there's a few things that the Republican Party chair does um, without getting too deeply into it. Uh, they're the leader of the party, you know. It's their job to really kind of wrangle everyone, uh, fundraise, uh, get people together, make sure everyone's on board behind the ticket, support the ticket themselves. We saw, for example, um, Ambassador Ron Weiser, current co current chair and co-chair Michelle Maddock, uh, they spent their term really trying to unite the party. Um, their co-chairship was in part that effort to unite the so-called donor class uh the traditional republicans with the money think the devosses with the grassroots elements of the party uh so that's something that they've been really trying to do as leader and it kind of symbolizes the direction of the party and which candidates are going to get support which types of candidates are going to get support obviously they don't meddle in primary elections that's up to the voters but it really sets the tone uh, going forward, especially as we get into this 2024 uh, election cycle. The party is going to choose its new leadership in February. Walk us through the process for choosing the new chair. These are going to be uh, selected by delegates. They're going to have a convention in February. I believe it's going to be uh, February 18th. At some point in January, you can expect to see uh, county conventions being held to choose which delegates are going to go to that uh, statewide convention and choose the party chair. So this will be something that the party faithful uh, will be deciding. Let's move on to another piece you had out this week. The Michigan Department of Corrections was in front of the state Senate over persistent problems with the state's only women's prison. Catch us up on what happened there. Yeah, so this is something where earlier this month there was a follow-up audit uh, done by the Michigan uh, Office of the Auditor General. Uh, this was looking into issues that they originally found within the Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility back in 2017. There were three conditions that, there, that they found in 2017 that the Michigan Office of the Auditor General wanted to follow up on. Uh, they found two of those still partially remained. Um, the third one uh, dealt with access to tools. Uh, possibly dangerous tools and whether or not those were being properly controlled uh, to the department's Department of Corrections credit, they did fix that problem. Uh, the two that remained, though, did deal with uh, cell searches, prisoner shakedowns, and employee searches as they're entering the gates. And then there was a third condition found in an audit uh, back from 2019 that dealt with whether or not uh, prisoners with chronic health conditions were properly getting uh, the follow-up care that they needed on time. And the conclusion of the follow-up audit was that the department had not complied with uh, with recommendations from that 2019 audit as well, or that rather that June 2020 report as well. Uh, so this is really what the Senate Oversight Committee wanted to investigate to see what happened, why weren't these problems fixed, and what's the department doing. What is the legislature's role in all of this? What are they able to do aside from hold hearings and have MDOC come and, and talk about it? And I guess what is their, their main concern here? So that's interesting, especially given that this is so late in the year. Um, leadership of the Senate Oversight Committee is changing when Democrats take over the legislature next year. So with only a few days left really in the legislative session, they're kind of limited in what they can do right now. Uh, but some things that they can do, though, is talk about funding. They can make funding recommendations. Uh, they can see what resources the Department of Corrections needs to fix this. Uh, they can hold follow-up hearings, like you mentioned. That's something that current uh, Republican Senate Chair Ed McBroom told me after this meeting, that he hopes his next chair is going to continue with these hearings, you know, bringing in uh, some more of the people that are actually supposed some of the workers in the prisons, uh, some of the people that are actually going and evaluating to see what the workers are doing, get a better sense of 
how deep the actual problems run you know is this just a matter of a few people trying to hurry through their work just not being trained enough is this some bigger plot going on so they can investigate that um but yeah a lot of this is dealing with giving recommendations um providing resources um materials working with the prison seeing how working with the department of corrections to see how that can improve uh when I was speaking with Senator uh, Jeff Irwin, who represents Ann Arbor, the district where the women's prison is, uh, he was talking about it's not necessarily always the most productive when the legislature really tries to be too heavy handed. From their standpoint, they're looking at this more of as uh, how do we help you get better instead of how do we force you to do something? What is MDOC's response to all of this? MDOC for what it's worth, MDOC did agree with the uh, conclusions, the findings of the report. Uh, they are defending themselves a bit, saying essentially these are these types of searches and prisoner shakedowns and cell searches, etc. These are things that guards do several times a day, hundreds, th- hundreds of times a year. Uh, the report only looked at a relatively small sample of them. So in that standpoint, the department's saying, well this is a problem. They acknowledge this is a problem. Uh, This might not be as much of a problem as the department, as the tapes uh, may show. But at the same time, they're saying they see this as a training opportunity. Um, That's what uh, legislative liaison Kyle Kaminsky told the committee. He said they take it very seriously. Some of the issues in the report were people were faking logbooks and saying they committed they conducted searches that they didn't uh, conduct uh it wasn't if you look at the overall sample it wasn't a very large sample so the percentages seem a little bit high but that being said they do see this as an issue but for other ones they said this is a training exercise um this is a training opportunity um maybe people aren't necessarily aware of the protocols or we need just better oversight so those are some things that they're going to work toward. Um, as far as the fi- follow-up finding from the 2020 audit uh, regarding medical care, they're saying that they did make changes. Um, well, they said they made changes for all of these and that they're currently updating procedures and everything else to uh, respond to the OAG's findings. But they're saying that also it's important to note that the even some of the inmates who didn't receive follow-up care for their specific chronic condition, they still received medical care for other issues as well. So it wasn't as if they're trying to frame this as at least as it wasn't as if their medical needs weren't completely being ignored. In another report that you uh, wrote about this week, the State Department of Education found 54 school districts with at least one low achieving school. Is this bad? Is it better than in years past? What's the what's the context here? So the context is these numbers aren't the state's accountability system numbers aren't uh, super old. There's not a lot of data to compare this to Uh, going back to the 2016, 2017 school years and the 2017 to 2018 school years. uh, Yeah, these numbers are uh, worse than what we had in the past. Um, There's three different levels of state support. Uh, and they each get identified at various intervals. Um, one, I believe, is a six-year interval. Another one's a three-year interval. Uh, another level is identified annually. But that being said, these are uh, school performance numbers required by the federal government for the state to figure out. And during the pandemic, they had waivers, so they didn't have to measure these numbers during the pandemic. So this is kind of really the first one of the first uh, snapshots of 
what happened during the pandemic and uh, which schools, how schools are responding, how schools are doing, et cetera. So yeah, the numbers across all three of those categories are up. Um, one is up from 162 in the 2016 to 17 school year to 255 this time around. Uh, another one's up just from 60 to 68 uh, from 2017 to 2018 school year to this uh, current school year um, or for this past school year. Uh, another one is up from 63 in the 2018 to 2019 school year uh, to 138 in last school year. So the numbers are up. Uh, the department is saying Partnerships are a good thing for school districts. So even though the numbers may seem concerning, they're saying at least that this is really an opportunity to really identify uh, who's struggling and how to get them the resources that they need. Finally, looking ahead to the presidential primary, I know we just had an election, but there is another one coming up in two years, a very big one, the 2024 presidential primary and presidential election. There has been some talk and some movement in Michigan of moving up when the state holds its presidential primary. What's going on here? So the Senate uh, this week took some moves to move up the state's presidential primary. Currently, it is in March. Uh, the According to the Senate bill, if this does end up getting passed and approved, uh, it would be moved up to February. So they sent that over to the House of Representatives. Uh, it's unclear how the House of Representatives is going to respond. I spoke with uh, House Elections Chair Ann Bolin earlier, a Republican representative. Uh, she said she's open to the idea. It seems like her focus is actually more on moving the state's uh, primary elections in general, not just presidential years uh, from August to June. So we'll see how that goes. It seems like there might be a little bit of deal making. Maybe those bills that would move it up to June are in the Senate. And for her to really move that forward in the House or at least support that in the House, uh, it's possible that there may be a little bit of deal making where she'd like to see that moved in the Senate as well. So it might not just be uh, presidential election years that we see moved up. This is something that's typically been associated with Democrats who are tired of Iowa and New Hampshire being the first ones to uh, vote in presidential primaries, even though they may not demographically reflect the nation. Um, this has been something more Democrats are have supported, but it's worth noting uh, Senator Wayne Schmidt, a Republican, is the one who sponsored this bill. And it's something that the Michigan Republican Party came out and said we think it's a good idea for Michigan to have a better say in presidential elections without saying one way or another uh, whether or not they support this specific bill. Yeah, talk us through that. How does moving up the presidential primary date in Michigan, how does that impact our elections? How does that impact our state? What are what are people saying is the benefit of doing this? Well, for one thing, there's a large financial boost to the state to having that first presidential primary election. Um even if it wouldn't be the first, it would be one of the first, depending on what Iowa does. I've seen some reports out there that Iowa does not want to give up its first spot. But, I mean, there's a lot of money that comes in, you know. You have being first sets the tone for the rest of the race. Um, it gives candidates a lot of momentum. Uh, there's a massive amount of money being spent there. There's a massive amount of news media spent there. There's even tourism dollars. Um, obviously, then there's the influence that Michigan would have. Uh Lately, in the past few election cycles, 2016, 2020, even this uh, midterm election, Michigan has been increasingly uh, on the national radar as one of these pivotal states that decide control of Congress, that decide the White House, um, that decide control of the Senate. So both parties would really like to see 
or both parties would at least like to see Michigan's influence grow. Uh, and this is something where Democrats, especially since, like I said, they've been getting a little bit tired of Iowa and New Hampshire being the first ones to go, um, or seem like they're open to a change. Colin Jackson is the Capitol reporter for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Mishmash. Thanks for having me, Shana. Thanks again to our guest, Colin Jackson, from the Michigan Public Radio Network. Mishmash was produced by WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This episode was produced by myself, Shana Roth, and Hearns Laguerre, Jr. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn, and our podcast manager is David Lyons. Our digital team is Dave Kim and Sophia Joswiak, and our podcast interns are Ashley Harris, Patrick Burness, and Jack Philbrandt. As always, if you listen to this podcast and want to support it, and we really hope you do, you can do so by leaving us a review, or you can also support WDET by going to WDET.org slash give. Without your donations, this show is really not possible. 